I'd like to turn with you to the passage of Scripture that we've been looking at for the past several, actually, months. It's Acts chapter 2, and we talked about four basic elements of church that we see as the church was being birthed right there at, uh, in Acts chapter 2. It's almost as if we saw the action, the drama of the church being birthed from Pentecost, from the resurrection of Jesus to his few words with the disciples and then the disciples entering into the upper room to pray and the Holy Spirit bringing to birth, travailing and bringing to birth on the day of Pentecost, the church. And in that, the power of God that was manifest as God transformed a company of people who were um, trembling and frightened and afraid and and disappointed and devastated by the death of their master into a group of people who are completely bold. And what we see, what we saw was um, Peter's message or his sermon that caused um, a great response and great supernatural things to take place. The church was born in, in apostolic power. It was not born uh, by discussion, but it was born by something supernatural breaking in. And that is the mark of the church. The mark of the church is not the mark of what we do in and of ourselves, but what the Holy Spirit is doing. So the church is really, the human, the, the human part of the church is we following the Holy Spirit. And even as we follow the Holy Spirit, He fills us and works His works through us. And so we saw that there were four things that mark the church. Um, and we will look at that in verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine or doc apostles' teaching and to fellowship. We've been looking at the apostles' the teaching that they devoted themselves to and to fellowship. They devoted themselves to it, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Yeah, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. These four things can sometimes be so codified by us and so intellectualized and uh, made into words upon words upon words in all our Bible studies that in the end, we can end up losing the power of it, the awe of it, and the, 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 um, the, the, the substance of it. But just lest we uh, think that these are just words or things that human beings try to put as pillars of their own social club, um, it says here in verse 43, the enacting of these four things caused everyone to keep feeling a sense of awe. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. It's not that you felt awe because of one event that took place, but they kept feeling a sense of awe. They were continually feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were be taking place through the apostles. And, those, and all those who had believed were together, had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, etc. The thing about it is that there's an awe that accompanies the, the proper enactment of these four things, that the apostles devoting themselves to apostles' do doctrine was not just become nerdy about the Bible. Uh, developing the devotion for, to fellowship was not just being this clubby community. Breaking of bread was not just doing a physical ritual that had very tiny significance in real life. And the breaking of bread and, and, the, and the, the fellowship was, and devoting themselves to prayer was more than just praying a lot of times in prayer meetings. Because the evidence of its legitimacy, the evidence of God being on it and God's sanction of it was the fact that the awe of God and the miracles of God accompanied these things. They were not just things done correctly and properly and according to snuff. They were things that the Holy Spirit was filled with, was, was filling. And I want to put it to you that actually, as we look into this third aspect of uh, the, the, the church, the things that the Holy Spirit was doing, when we look at the thing of the devoting of themselves to the breaking of bread, I put it to you that perhaps you may be surprised that what we just did had great, powerful, and awesome significance. The evidence of what we are doing has to be the fact that there's awe 
there's an awesome presence of God and miracle. Amen? And it causes us to do crazy things. It causes us to do crazy things. Call all things in common. Call all things in common. There's something that evidences the right participation in these four things. And so let's have a look at this. Um, They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, and to breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. Here, um, we are given to understand that the breaking of bread was not just having a common meal uh, with everybody just eating together. It was more than that. It was the, the breaking of bread. And uh, this signifies the Lord's Supper, yeah, the Lord's Supper, not just eating together, not just hanging out together. And uh, sometimes when uh, Christians kind of make the, the Bible kind of more relatable, they say, oh, it's just eating together and just hanging out together. No, it was not. There was place for that. In fact, probably the, in the later verses when it talked about eating bread from house to house, that's probably more, more like it. But this that we are talking about, the devotion to breaking of bread, well, the breaking of bread, was not just hanging out, not just eating together, uh, our favorite meal, but actually the bread and the cup as we have participated in this. If we are indwelling the truth of that, all will come. Yeah? All will come, and we will be experiencing supernatural things in our lives. Yeah? I remember several times um, participating in communion where tremendous miracles and healings took place. Uh, when I pers- personally had a, uh, my diagnosis of cancer of the prostate, um, one of the things that I really appreciated was that Cindy made sure that we had communion every day. Every day. And every day, I was moved to enact the fact that by faith, Christ has given his life and to be broken for me so that my body will not be broken in this, in, in this case, in this instance. And that I partake, I, 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 I eat the blood and the, and, the, and the body of the Lord Jesus into myself so that whatever the devil's trying to do, whatever sickness is doing, is superseded by the presence of God. I had to be not only recognizing God's presence, I had to be present to that. And communion, what does is is that it forces my spirit out of my own flesh. It forces the truth out of my own tendency to unbelief. And it presses it out and says, I surrender to you. I take whatever you have to give me. I take whatever you are to me. Amen? So let's, let's have a look at this. And uh, as we're looking at this, I'd like to turn you to John chapter 6, where Jesus speaks about this, about um, the, break, the, the Lord's Supper in a very kind of present way, a very immediate way. Okay, let's have a look at John chapter 6. Verse 12. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, have always give us this bread. 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Verse 41, Therefore the Jews came, and were, and were, sorry, and the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How, do, how does he know, now say, I am come down out of heaven? And Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. 
This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the, for the life of the world is my flesh. We'll stop here a little bit. There's actually more that's very exciting in uh, John chapter 6. Cindy mentioned stuff from John chapter 6 during our communion. Today, during communion, um, there's a reference to that as well. The thing about it is this. Jesus was speaking about not just words, not just physical bread, but supernatural life. Okay, This, this supernatural life is what he speaks about. When I was a kid, maybe I was four years old or so, I remember having a sense many times when I went to really beautiful places, really nice places in, Mal- in uh, Malaysia. Enjoying the beauty so much that I wanted to eat it up. Have you ever experienced that? Something that you like so much that you wish you can eat it or take it home with you or somehow wrap it up and get closer to it and have it inside you and not constantly be separate from it. Have you experienced that? But you want to eat it. When my kids were really, really young, not now, but when they were really young, he says, Daddy, I love you so much, I want to eat you up. And I remember during those days feeling really frustrated, the disconnection between something beautiful and my own desire for it. And sometimes art is like that. You know, you see something beautiful. It's so beautiful that you want to be one with it. You want to somehow pass into it and have it to be in you or with you or somehow not separate from you. I don't know whether you've experienced that or you felt that ever before. You, you're in a place and you just want it to come, come in with you. You, you know, Cindy and I, in, uh, in uh, 2019, I think, we went to uh, Bath, England. It was so beautiful, the, the, the countryside in Somerset, and that southern part of England, um, the so-called rail England. <laughs> so beautiful, you want to take it home with you. So what do we do? We take a lot of pictures. Right, we want to find a way in which we can be one with that thing, and it can we can have it in st- and 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 it can stay with us all the time, you know. And so, what do we do? We buy souvenirs, right? We buy souvenirs, you know. I remember going to uh, one place and buying a really cheap pen, really cheap pen. But because I bought it there, I didn't want to lose it. It was very precious to me. Have you ever experienced that? It's, it's silly, and I'm mean, it's silly, but yeah, but it's but me and my pens like. Very important. And I remember one time we went to LA. It was about an hour away uh, to see um, an, a forensic, uh, forensic expert about something. And I left that pen in a cafe that we had gone to for lunch nearby that place. That pen actually costs maybe $10 at the most. Yes, $10. $10. But I bought it in France, in, Le- in Lyon. And I, it reminded me so much of it that the next day, I drove all the way there to the restaurant. And when I could find it, I was so relieved. I, you cannot believe how much joy I had having that than being able to, to have somebody give me a gift of uh, a fountain pen for $150. No, this was $10. But there's something about it. We want to be into it. We want it to be in us. You know that? Do you know that feeling? I just, my kids used to tell me, I want to eat you, daddy. Eat you up. C.S. Lewis talks, actually talks about that um, in one of his, uh, in his sermons. And he talks about our longing for beauty. Yeah, longing, longing for beauty, that which is beauty, beautiful or glory, actually. Yeah. And, our, and this longing is something that is insatiable. It's it's insatiable. We're not just happy enough to hear about the words talking about it. We're not even satisfied to see it with our physical eyes. We want somehow to be 
more united with it, right? And he talks about this glory, about the morning star. And he says, what more, you may ask, do we want? Ah, but we want so much more. Something the books on aesthetics take little notice of. But the poets and the mythologists know all about it. We do not want to merely see beauty, though. God knows even though that that is bounty enough, we want something else that we can hardly put into words. To be united with the beauty we see. To pass into it. To receive it unto ourselves. To bathe in it. To become part of it. Does it make any... Does it ring a bell for you? That is why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a human soul, but it can't. He's talking about how we use metaphors. We use metaphors to, that point to the, the, the beauty and the truth of it. But it's all in, only a metaphor. Don't mistake the metaphor for the thing itself. And sometimes we can pray and talk in Christianese, you know, about in a very metaphorical way, and we hope that the words will evoke something, but the words are not the same thing as the thing itself. Saying the word glory is not the same as actual glory. Kavod of God, right? The, the weight of God. So that's what he's saying when he says, that is why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a human soul, but it can't. It's not enough just to say it. They tell us that beauty born of murmuring sound will pass into a human face, but it won't. What C.S. Lewis is basically saying is that words are not sufficient. We like to read the words of the Bible. We like to, to read poetry or beautiful things or see beautiful things and all that. But it is not enough. There's something more that God made us for and it's not just to be comforted by the mention of it. It's not enough just to have souvenirs of it. It's not even enough to have photographs of it. We want it, don't you think? And I think that's what Jesus is saying when he says that I am the bread of life. I'm the one that, I'm the one. You're not looking for bread that's actually going to, to not last you, that, that rots and all that. But I am the one. You don't want just want to hear about it. You don't want to just read about it. You want it. You want me. You want me. You want God. You don't want good words about God. You don't want just religion. You don't want all that. You want something that you, something beautiful and glorious, something of God that you hunger and yearn for and you are made for, and you want to pass into Him. You want to be one with Him. You want union with Him. It's not enough to be aesthetically admiring or adoring of it. You want somehow, even in, our worship, even in, in, in your worship to Him, you want to not only admire Him only, you want to be one with Him. And that's what Jesus was speaking about in John chapter 6, when He was saying in John chapter 6, you have to eat me. Not just admire me, not just meditate on my words, not just look at icons or pictures of me. It's not even enough to watch the movie The Chosen or Jesus of Nazareth. It's not. In fact, when you watch it, if you have the right response, you want more. It will make you more hungry. Does that make sense? All right. Psalm 42 as the deer panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee. Right? When shall I come before you? See my God, you know? That kind of thing. Deep calls to the deep. The hunger that the psalmist is, 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 uh, is uh, expressing is a hunger not just to, to read more words. The hunger is for God's power and His glory to be seen. In Psalm 63, 
just as I have seen you in the sanctuary, to behold your power and your glory. And then the psalmist continues in Psalm 63, and my, my soul pants after you, it follows hard after you, your hand lifts me up, and, I, and my, my soul is, is, is satisfied as with fat. Come man. We must not be Christian nerds. It's just not, it's not the thing, right? Don't get satisfied with nice metaphors or nice Christian poetry and aesthetics. And all, that, all that's very good. But those are supposed to be a doorway into the actual thing. The thing that you're supposed to eat. Don't be, don't be deceived by the fact that somebody can preach up here and then you can go home. No! Because you don't want to just hear the words, but but if the words are anointed, you will, some of it will rub off on you. But that's not enough. What you want to do is to eat it. You want it to, to soak in it. You want it to be in you. You want to be one with it. You want to pass into it. So that the power of God will raise you up from the dead. The power of God will anim- animate you and it will, it will pass through it like electricity passing through your body, right? That's what we want. We want the electrifying thing, right? Hello? Yeah, we want, we, want, we want something. We want praise that actually changes things. And what Jesus is speaking about is that. He's not talking about more words. What we don't want is for communion to be more words. These words are supposed to open up the door into the actual, actuality, the actual, we use the word in BCF a lot, substance of it. I want that more, <laughs> don't you? Today, let's talk about that, okay? Today, we'll talk a little bit about the fact that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. What it is, is that they devoted themselves to the actual substance of it. And that breaking of bread was the breaking of bread of Jesus' body and what it meant to take into themselves all that it mean to have God in you, okay? So let's have a look at this. In John chapter 6, He says even more. Verse 53, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God, man, and drink of his blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. That means you stay in me, and I inside you. You interpenetrate. Interpenetrate, I'm in him and he's in me. He says, you know, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of the blood, you have no life in you. It struck me that what Jesus was saying is this. Words are not that life. Intentions are not that life. Desire is not that life. Other people's anointing is not that life. Cool church is not that life. True things are not that life. The Bible is not that life. Why is it just pages? Godly people are not that life. Jesus is that life. And he says, what he's basically saying is this. If anything is multiplied by not Jesus, it equals zero. That means if good words and good books and good preaching is multiplied by zero, it is still zero. What Jesus is saying is a very damning indictment on a Christianity that is satisfied to be around godly things or godly words or inspiring books or even preaching. What he's saying is this, unless you, you, you pass through all the nice words, good words, prophetic stuff, all that kind of stuff, into the substance of who, who these things are indicating, it's still zero. You have no life in yourself. Right? Unless you eat of the flesh and the Son of Man and drink of His, his blood, you have not, no life in, your, in yourself. Wow. What he's doing is that he's passing judgment on everything that is other than the life of Jesus himself. 
That means, shockingly, every Christian thing that we do, if it is not Jesus that we are imbibing, is actually no life in itself. Christian things don't have life in themselves. But uh, in case you leave the sermon at this point, may I say to you that actually what Jesus has come to do is to fill all that we've just spoken about with himself. And that is why we have soaking. The soaking idea is not just to meditate, but to give ourselves time to receive into ourselves the Holy Spirit. So that right now, we are listening not to a man who's speaking, no matter how true those things are, but we are wanting to relate to Jesus himself in person. Yeah, in person. But Jesus can be speaking in person. After all the noise, after all the jokes, after everything's done, in the end, what's more important than all that, that even that you came to church, is the fact that at that moment, you can eat of Him. Not just apply the Word of God. It's not even that. It's eating of Him, staying with Him, and we'll talk more about it. What does it mean to be one with Him and to eat of the bread and the, and the, and the cup? Okay? Let's move on. So the church in Acts chapter 2, based upon what they had heard in, in John chapter 6 and, and from, of course, other places, when they break, broke bread, they were coming to this place in which they were having a chance to actually pass through all the words that Jesus had said and enter into Him into the actual reality of God himself. That's where the awe and the miracles would take place. Okay? But when you come to 1 Corinthians, many years later, you see how the church practiced the breaking of bread. And so if you can turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and, verse 11, and chapter 11, you see that the church did it in a way that was not true to what Jesus was saying in John chapter 6. In John chapter 10, um, Paul finds within the church division, yeah? this, this vision in the church and factions. Actually, he talked about factions. And so, we won't have time to look at the whole of chapter 10, but we will look at one verse, uh, one or two verses. Therefore, my beloved, verse 14, flee from idolatry, I speak. As to wise men, you judge what I say. Verse 16 is what I want to focus on. It's not the cup of blessing which we bless. The communion or the sharing, yeah, or the participation in the blood of Christ. It's not the bread which we break. A communion or a sharing in the body of Christ. So what he's saying is this. When we take the, the, the cup and when we take the bread, we are communing. It means we are entering into interpenetrating the presence of God. When we take the bread and we take the cup, what's happening is that we're not just taking juice or uh, some calories. We are actually entering into communion. It's what C.S. Lewis was longing for, this passing into it, right? Isn't that what it is, he's saying? This is, this is what it is. You are participating, you are, you are, you are entering into this um, you're communing or you're sharing in the body and the blood of Christ. Is this not the bread which we, which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ? And then chapter 11, Paul talks about the fact that actually you're not doing it. You're not doing that because of the fact that you don't care about those in your, in your midst. In fact, your whole attitude toward, towards people in the church is factionalism. You have your favorites and you favor them. Not only that, you have no regard to them. You're not, no, you have no, no regard to them. You're taking communion for yourself. This is not the Lord's Supper. It's your supper. Okay? 
And so if you look at chapter 11, we'll read that from verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you or factions. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions, there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, it's to eat your own supper, basically what he's saying. You are coming together for communion for your own sake. Okay, you're coming for your own sake. For in you for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry. And another is drunk. What? I like the NASB. What? Do you not have houses in which you can eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. No, I'm not going to praise you. Because when you come together, there are some of you who have nothing and don't feel up to it enough or, or don't feel accepted enough. And you just leave them alone. For I received from the Lord that which I received, delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and cup, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who drinks and eats, sorry, eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not. And the word judge here is best translates discern the body of the Lord. Discern the body rightly. You're not discerning the body rightly or judging. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if you judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the word. What, what Paul is saying is here is this. When we take of the, take of the cup, we take off of the of the bread. We have to discern the body of the Lord, right? Which is the church. And he says, "I see something. I'm not there, but I can guess there's something wrong here, because of I know that you have factions. And because of the fact that I know that you have factions, there is something I know that is that is wrong with your your church, because there are many of you who are sick." Some have died. There's a certain unhealth in your church that is manifesting in the, in the face of communion. I'm putting two and two together. I'm seeing that you're not united, you have factions, and then there's unhealth in the church. That should not be that case because if you're eating the bread and the, and the, and the cup and you're, you're receiving Christ into yourself, you're being one, then that should not be the case. Something's missing. Something's amiss here. Does it make sense? So Paul, Paul is saying, I'm guessing this, I'm guessing this. But as he's guessing this, he's actually explaining the logic of how he sees communion. Okay? And, he's saying, and he's saying that when you come together, there is a power that seems to be missing. There is something missing about your communion. Because the communion should actually be the supernatural life of Christ coming inside you, flowing through you, flowing through the body. But you are making it your communion, your, your supper rather than the Lord's supper. And you, because of that, the supper, Lord's supper doesn't mean that much to you. In fact, some of you are drunk. So he can imagine, he's imagining this church like just totally tipsy, right? It's totally tipsy, like falling over themselves. Like the, the communion is like, what's this? It's just like bread and stuff. You know, it's just nothing. That's right. Uh, but oh, Lord, we've got some good, 
grub that we can actually have. And we don't have to worry about these things. People are completely self-absorbed, right? They're absorbed, they're drunk, they're unaware of God. They are not yearning for God. They are not having the glory of God pass into them and, pass in, and they're not having themselves pass into the glory of God. They're not having any of that. And Paul is saying, I, I don't know what's going on there, but I know that there's factions there. And also I've heard these things about you. And so because of that, there's a distinct lack of power. There's a le- distinct lack of awesomeness and miracles that the apostles did in Acts chapter 2. Okay? There's a distinct lack of that. And, I, I, and I'm, I'm concerned for you because you don't have that. And actually, I'm not concerned that you're misbehaving yourself. I'm concerned that you don't have the power. You don't have the awesomeness that's, that's supposed to be a company. You don't have that. There's something missing. He's not, he's not, it's not a giveaway to him that they are all drunk and all that. And, but it's a giveaway that when Christ's power and his blood and his, his body are eaten, are taken in and, 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 and received, there should not be this unhealth in the church. Not, there should not be that weakness in the church. There should not be this falling asleep and, and all that kind of stuff. There should be something more dynamic that's happening. In fact, when you come together and, 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 and have the communion, you should be like what I know to be, have taken place in Acts chapter 2. That is that when they devoted themselves to the, the Lord's Supper and the breaking of bread, all came. Miracles came because they devoted themselves to it. You're distinctly not devoted. You're distinctly missing something there, what Paul is saying. Does that make sense? And what he's saying is this. You don't understand that when Jesus said, okay, this is my body, you will do this in remembrance of me, and you declare the death of the Lord Jesus, you don't understand that when you take the, 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 the communion, you are identifying with Jesus' death. You're not identifying your ambition with all the, the, the resources from heaven that faith can actually get for you. No, you're identifying with Jesus' death. That means you die also. That means you don't have a life anymore. That means when you take the communion, you're like the Romans who when they drank the cup to Rome, to Caesar, they're saying, okay, we will die for Caesar. I don't have a life of my own. Does that make sense? And what Paul is saying is this, there's something about you that's making it your, your communion, your Lord's, your supper, not the Lord's supper. It's not the Lord's supper you are, you, are, you, are, you are celebrating. You are celebrating yourself. And because of that, if you continue to take the Lord's supper, when your ambition makes you want to use Christianity to be more powerful, to more relatable, to more relevant, to, to be more rich or to be more prosperous, to be more attractive to people, if, if you're using this only so that you can actually have what you can get from it, you miss out on communion because communion is the self-giving of yourself to God so that just as Jesus died for you, you are, you are willing to die for Him. And this will manifest itself in the way in which you treat the people in the body of Christ. If you don't discern the body of Christ, what's happening is that you don't realize that actually this person who's not your kind is just as much Christ to you. You don't go with the people you like. You don't go with the people who are cool. You don't go with the people that, 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 that everybody likes. This is not junior high. You go with the body of Christ. You discern the body of Christ. You see somebody in the church who's not like your own culture, not, only, not like your education or like your mindset. And you go with that person because he, that person needs to, the body of Christ needs to be discerned in that. And when you don't do that, I can bet you a penny, Paul did not say, <laughs> That there's something wrong. There's something wrong with your communion because your communion is not one in which you self-gave to God until you have no more rights. You are crucified with Christ. You see, because Paul wanted to pass into the union with Christ, he's not satisfied with words or, or metaphors or poetry or art and all that. He's not satisfied with that because he wants the substance of it. And so he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And what? And what? The fellowship of his sufferings. 
even being conformed to his death. That's a very hard verse. But what he's saying is that you cannot know the body and blood of Christ unless your body of Christ, blood of Christ, is not just a sort of name it and claim it and faith it and, and be cool about it and be all, the in, be all the intellectuals, cool stuff that Christians nowadays in this present age are about. No, you actually die. And in order for you to experience the anointing and the power of God, you also suffer with Him. You also suffer with Him. And you suffer with Him like Moses, who, in spite of the fact that he grew up in Pharaoh's house, forsook that and identified with the people of God and their shame. Remember that? Hebrews 11 verse 24. You are not like Peter, who identified with the Jews one day in Jerusalem, who are more, they're more, you know, orthodox. They're more kind of, they're the cool ones. And then he also identified with the Gentiles, who were the misbehaving ones. Of course, today in America, the misbehaving ones are the cool ones and the non-misbehaving ones are the non-cool ones. But just think about it. It goes either way. Not like Peter, who identified with the Jews. He was circumcised. He was everything on that. And at the same time, he also identified with the Gentiles. Right? He ate with the Gentiles. But when the Jews came, you know what he did? He distanced himself from the, from the Gentiles because they were not the cool ones. You see what I'm saying? He does not discern the body of Christ and Paul had to give him a slap on his hand. And thank God Peter took it well. He was a hum- humble man, he says. Paul, he's great. And many, many, many profound things I don't even fully, fully understand. Our brother Paul. But Paul says in Galatians, right? I withstood him because he was not identifying with the body of Christ, which is both Jews and Gentiles. You watch it as a, Christ, as a Christian. We do that all the time. We do that all the time. And when you don't sacrifice or you don't s- surrender yourself and die to self because you want to be with the cool people, then you don't b- discern the body of Christ. The body of Christ becomes weak. True? And so what... Um, Paul was saying here is this. When you take it, you bring judgment upon yourself because you have not discerned the body of Christ. And you will have opportunity to do that. You will have opportunity to identify with the body of Christ in spite of the fact that you may not like them. You may not like them you may find it cool to be able to identify with non-Christians more than Christians. Okay, you want to do that? Do it. But the point is that if you don't discern the body of Christ, you will identify in a negative way to your own body with Christ. Because Christ loves the the, the church. He loves them. In spite of the fact that they may be... wrong in many ways. And they're not perfect. Not only are they not perfect, they're da- downright imperfect. They're, they're downright imperfect. Okay? And I wonder whether this is something that is a, is a hump that we have to cross in order for us to identify with people in the church that we don't naturally identify with and suffer perhaps the criticism of outsiders because, you know what, because you don't just rag on your own Christian brothers and sisters. Because you don't rag on them. You take the shame, but you keep quiet. Because if you rag on them when when non-Christians rag on, on your brothers and sisters and you rag on them, you divert the criticism that you're supposed to receive, the suffering that you're supposed to receive, to those bad brothers and sisters that you have. You divert it. You become cool. You become like them. You become not like those 
horrible Christians. You divert the, the suffering of Christ to someone else. No, you stand. And you stand just as Jesus stood for you because in your and my horribleness, and I'm all, your, your and my corruption, He stood there. And He carried that. And when He ident- causes us to identify with Him and His horrible body, His dirty body, we stand there and we receive the blood and the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And that is why it was so terrible for Paul that um, the Corinthian church divided themselves into the cool and the uncool ones in the church. When I uh, um, saw this, I was uh, fresh out of college. And as I've shared with you, um, I came from a family that was very well respected and liked and well known in my country, Malaysia. But um, when the Lord spoke to me, after I had been filled with the Holy Spirit, I seen sort of a move of God in my campus. And I was yearning for more. I was yearning for more. I wanted to not hear from the overseas preachers about all these miracles. I wanted it to happen in my life as well. And I was frustrated that I would do everything they did, but I didn't have the anointing that they had. They didn't have that effect. And uh, I sought the Lord about it and fasted and prayed about it. And I said, Lord, I want more. This, this charismatic movement makes me satis- dissatisfied with myself. I want to see the power of God. If you can work through these people, why can't you work in my campus through me? And, and I felt the Lord speak to me. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. But you have to lay down your life for it. You have to lay down your life. And uh, very soon after that, before I graduate, uh, uh, around the time when I graduated, I joined this church, right? This church had had maybe 18 people. And I joined with uh, quite a good number of my, the, the people that I was hanging out with who had brought to the Lord. And so suddenly that church had doubled the attendance. But it was a church that was misunderstood by the body of Christ. In fact, my parents were not happy that I joined that church because they thought it was a cult. So I've shared this before. What I didn't share with you is the fact that um, we went to a pastor's conference after that. There was a, a big pastor's conference about 800 to 1,000 people in this pastor's conference. And my parents, my family, they just knew everybody. Like everybody was Dr. Ko, Dr. Ko, Dr. Ko, Mrs. Ko, and my, my mom and my, and my dad. And I also went. I went with my, past, my pastors, right? So the three of us went. But because of the fact that this church that I joined was misunderstood greatly, in fact, they were very much ahead of their time. A lot of the things that are now normal, they were practicing before hardly anybody was, was, was talking about this in discipleship, you know, raising an army kind of um, they were charismatic before there was a charismatic movement in Malaysia. And when the charismatic movement came, they were, this church were very happy that there was a charismatic movement. But because they were so strong on discipleship, many of the charismatics d- didn't like that. And they thought that they were extreme. On looking back, I, I don't believe they were. They were just very serious with God. And I remember when we went to that pastor's conference, I didn't know who to sit with. To sit with these two in my church or to sit with the, all those people that I knew from uh, my association with my family. And when I did that, I realized that I have to identify with the church that I've joined. So I sat with them. Nobody came to talk to them. They were just, just alone. So there were going to be about 800,000 people, my family and all that, and these two were sitting alone, and I was sitting next to them during the whole conference. 
And during one of the, the times in the conference, one of the preachers, mistakenly I believe, called them out, right? Called them out and made accusations in public that these people had, had done extreme things. And they called out the church and I came out with them. The three of us came out with them. And we stood in front of the whole pastor's conference. And my parents were mortified to see that their son was with this group of people that they didn't even agree with, you know? But I knew that the Lord was saying, you stand firm. You take the reproach. Take the reproach. Even though you don't believe that you are, your church is wrong, you take the reproach. And I could see very clearly in this whole thing, I could go with my family, and for a moment when I was, you know, fellowshipping over coffee with some of these pastors, they were just slapping on my back, just happy to see me, hugging and all that. And then they would see me walk back to where these other two, where these other two were sitting, sitting. And I understood that the most uncool thing was what God, what God was telling me to do. What had happened just earlier was that somebody had written a, new, uh, a, a report a full-page report about that church, how the church was a cult. It was completely full of lies because I knew that. I lived there. Um, and so because of that, their name was smeared for a while. Now, to many, la many years later, they were vindicated and they became celebrated by the church in Malaysia. My parents, my, all, the, all the charismatic people, the non-charismatic people, it's just think, wow, this, you guys were ahead of your time. We are so sorry. Many, many years later, there was so much apology for all that I had done. But there was a time in which God called me to discern the body of Christ. Does that make sense? To me, to experience the oneness with, with Christ meant not going for suffering, not just chasing after suffering. It's just saying, I want all of your life including the fellowship of your suffering, if that is what it meant. I'm not going to go chasing after these things, but there are times in which when we identify with Christ, we don't identify with the good bits only, but we identify with Him in all that He calls us to. Does that make sense? I feel that today, we are so trapped in the aesthetics of words and ministry and things that have to do with God helping us to be the center of things. And at the same time, we are so trapped by, so we are so satisfied that we can read about miracles and read about good things and be satisfied that the, 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 the small, shallow, cheap thrill of words evocations can be enough for us. No. As I said, said before, um, if you are going to the restroom, it's not satisfying. If you need to go and pee, and you just see a picture of a man out there and say, oh, I love it. Can you imagine just taking that picture of the man on the, on the, on the, on the doors and just kissing it and say, oh, thank you, I have found the restroom. And not relieving yourself. Right? Can you imagine that? We are just like, you know, Christians are like that. We're so satisfied with just little piddly things. It's Peanuts, right? Oh, I love the words. And that is where sometimes our Christian aesthetics is not enough. It's good, but it should be a doorway to more of the substance of Christ. Amen? So these two things, just to drop, drop these two points before you, before we go to next week. The life of Christ is something that God calls us to. Now, we're going to close in a, in a very, very short while. Where does soaking come in? Where does soaking come in? When we uh, hear the word, or we read the word, or we know we, we believe in the word, Jesus says, you eat it by believing in me. You receive it. You take it in. We understand that words have to pass into reality. Yeah? Most of us are thrilled just by the word. But we've not experienced its reality yet. 
Soaking, what it does is this. We say, Lord, I come before you and I know that you have this for me. I'm not satisfied that the words inspire me because tomorrow, over next morning's cup of coffee, it will not feel anything. I feel dead. I need you for, to cause me to pass through the words into your reality. When we wait upon God, Isaiah 40 says, we will renew strength. We need strength. Divine substance of strength comes to us. You have to wait for it, though. If you don't have time for it, then that's not for you yet. Okay? Hopefully, there will be a day when you have time, but don't, don't wait too long. The thing about it is this. It will require a collapsing of every other agenda that you and I have for it because you're talking about God. Next week, we'll talk about how you cannot discern the body, you can not be discerning the body of Christ by thinking that we don't need that much forgiveness and that his suffering for us was not really that great because we didn't need to be forgiven that much. But what we will talk about next week is about how the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was infinitely excruciating, infinitely dark and burdensome, was on, on account of the fact that we are all sinners. That Christian love does not mean to say that you are all okay. We are not okay. You are not okay. I'm not okay. Except for the blood of Jesus. Amen? Or else you make a mockery. You make a mockery of, of the, 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 the death of Jesus. You think that Jesus didn't need to do that? That's not, that's not a thing. No, you are a sinner. I'm a sinner as well. Amen? We are in need of it. But thank be to God that God went all the infinite way to make up for all my sin. Amen? And as we do that, we expect that as we wait upon Him, little by little, in our own soul, in our own consciousness, the reality of that begins to percolate slowly, drop by drop. We're not that smart. Drop by drop, it comes in. And then after a while, it builds up. And when it builds up, it becomes a conviction. And the conviction is a substance. And when it's a substance, it will change the way in which we talk, it will change the way we, we behave, it will change the way we are free, and make us willing to do a lot of these things without any, without any fear about it. Amen? Let us pray. your name. And invite us to just worship Him, lift up our hands in surrender unto Him. And as He does, He pours out none of His judgment, none of His condemnation, but His love, His forgiveness that makes us love the ones who are not like us. Jesus, we acknowledge the eternal moment that we're in right now, that your work is at work. Father God, to help us believe, we acknowledge right now that eternal walls are way harder to get through than physical walls. And yet, Lord, we acknowledge this week that different ones of us have come up against eternal walls where you were calling us towards you, and no one's taught us how to get towards you. But you're here right now showing Amen. us, Amen. showing us right now how to press in, press in against all that we don't know and understand so thick that Jesus actually broke down, but we've not experienced it all the way. So come, Holy Spirit, lead each one of us, each organ in your body, each finger, each eye, each head in the body right now, each foot right now, to be able to come in all together, Lord Jesus, into where you are close to you. Because we're your bride, Lord. We're your bride. We thank you right now that we are not made to be separate from you. 
We were made for eternal things. So, Lord, yes, we press in past the barriers we felt this week. Press in right now. And we accept your embrace right now, Lord. Amen, Lord. Bless your name. We hunger for you, Lord. As the deer pants after the water brook. The word of you that you speak to us doesn't make us less hungry, but makes us more hungry, more yearning for you, more longing for you. And we thank you that you give us this grace that we can actually have a focused longing, that we are not unfocused, but we are long for that one thing. And we thank you that with Paul, we can say this one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind and reaching out for things that are ahead. We press on towards the mark. Thank you, Lord, that we can count all other things as dung in view of the prospect of knowing you. So, Lord, we want to receive you whole. We surrender any part of ourselves that rejects parts of you. We receive you, Lord, in all soberness, in all seriousness, Lord, we want you to be real. We want the fullness of your reality. That you can manifest your power, your real, real love to us without any condition. Come, Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We give our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.